There we go. Welcome to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. We are in the Gospel of John, and we're in chapter 5 at the very end. So what we've seen in this chapter, by the way, we're about a year from the cross. We're about two-thirds of the way through the ministry of Jesus Christ, and yet we're only in chapter 5. The reason for that is the other Gospels kind of evenly spread things out, and then they get to the cross. The Gospel of John, uh, half of the Gospel of John is that last week of Jesus's life. That's the reason we're where we are. Um, we've heard, we've said that the overarching theme of the book of John is who is Jesus Christ and why that matters so much. We've heard all kinds of witnesses from John the Baptist to God himself, and now Jesus has been telling us who he is as well in this passage at the end of chapter five. Um, he has told us that he can raise the dead. He can give life to whomever he wants, that he is doing the father's will. All judgment will be Jesus doing it. We've also learned that Jesus is the one whose voice will awaken all who are in the graves. Some to everlasting life, that comes first. Some to judgment and contempt, those that don't believe. So um, we're going to see uh, some interesting things. This little part. And then when we get into chapter six, we'll see Jesus feed a multitude. And maybe if we get there, walk on the Sea of Galilee as well. Um, we're going to learn also about glory and applause and whose applause we're living for. Whose applause did Christ live for? Uh, and whose applause did the uh, religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, who did they live for approval from? Um, in any case, let's dive in. So I know you're awake. Those of you that are here, say amen. amen. Pretty good. Uh, those of you on Zoom, say amen or wave or do something, wave a, uh, a pillow at me if you're on the couch. All right. Oh, look, somebody has a sign that says amen. I love it. <laughs> oh, that's the people in Vanuatu. Vanuatu is on the other side, it's morning there, is it not, in Vanuatu? Um, and they watch over there. There's seven or eight or nine people over there that watch because there's a couple that my wife and I knew, and she's a uh, long story. But anyway, nice to have everybody here. Um, let's see. Jesus has been talking in chapter 5 about who he is. And in, we'll pick it up in verse 39, even though really where we were was just after that around verse 40 or 41. Verse 39, says, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and he says, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them, by the scriptures, you possess eternal life. They believed by reading the Bible and obeying the law of Moses that that would get them to earn salvation where God would owe it to them. And they can kind of feel a little holier than everybody else. He's saying you diligently seek and study those Old Testament scriptures. He's saying the whole book is about me. I went through a long list last week from the Old Testament about the Messiah. That's just a sampling. I added it up. It's 40 different prophecies. There are actually between 300 and 330 Old Testament predictions about a coming Messiah that Jesus fulfills while he is on the earth. Born of a virgin called Emmanuel, God with us, a male son who will be called Mighty God, tribe of Judah, from the family, the house of David, born in Bethlehem, 
um, would forgive sin, perform miracles, minister in Galilee, be uh, betrayed by a close friend for 30 pieces of silver. Um, none of his bones would be broken. That's unusual um, because crucifixion victims usually had their bones broken. Silent before his accusers, mocked, beaten, spit upon, pierced in his hands and his feet. If that doesn't amaze you, you have to realize that that was written about 700 years before Jesus shows up on the planet as a man. And it was written before crucifixion was even invented. It was invented by the Persians, and then the Romans adopted it and made it even more brutal than the per Persians had had it. Persia is Iran, modern-day Iran. Um, people would gamble for his garments, cast lots, etc., um, he'd be buried in, a, buried in a rich man's tomb. He'd rise from the dead. So we asked last week, who else in human history fits this resume? I mean, honestly, even for Jewish people that I've witnessed to, you have to admit, it does sound like Jesus of Nazareth, right? Um, so in any case, he's telling them that the Old Testament scriptures speak of him. When he rises from the dead, he appears to two in, in the Gospels, Matthew, I believe, but maybe Luke too. I think it's just Matthew. He appears to two disciples, remember, on the road to Emmaus. And they're lamenting that Jesus has come and gone and he died and that's the end of the story. And he appears to them and they don't know it's him. And he gives them a Bible study beginning with Moses and then all the prophets. He, Jesus himself, takes them through the scriptures and shows them that was me, that was me, that was me. Um, pretty amazing. I intend to get that DVD when I get to heaven and watch the whole Bible study taught by a real teacher, right? Um, verse 40, yet you refuse to come to me to have life, which implies what? That they don't have spiritual life. They clearly have physical life. They're awake. Their hearts are beating. They have brain waves. That's the definition of physical life, but they don't have spiritual life and they refuse to come to him, even though the very scriptures they claim to believe, Moses, their idol, the person they think was it, we'll see in a second, spoke of Jesus. So they refused to come to him to have life. Verse 41. By the way, the question is, why do they refuse? Partly because he doesn't fit the mold they think the Messiah ought to be, but there's more to the story. And he's going to hint at it and get to it here. 41 says, I do not accept praise from men. This is Jesus talking, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. Jesus says he doesn't accept praise from men. That's kind of an interesting thing. Um, you would think he would. He's trying to build a following, so to speak, but he knows what's in mankind. He talks about that in John chapter two, and he doesn't entrust himself to them because they're all still sinful. They don't have the Holy Spirit yet. Jesus doesn't accept the praise of men. So the question is, well, then whose applause or praise or glory does Jesus live for? And the answer is he lives for the praise of one person, God, his father. And it's a great lesson for you and I that we ought to be living the same way and not worry about what people think or what our friends think, family thinks, church thinks. That's all great. What God thinks is more important. Um, living for the applause of one, if you will. Um, so these people, he tells them, that these are the religious leaders of Judaism, and he's telling them, 
I know that you don't have the love of God in your hearts, verse 42. It's an astounding thing to say, that they don't have the love of God. They don't really love God. To love God, what does that mean? It would, it would mean, first of all, to know him. You can't love him without knowing him. So he's saying, you don't know him, therefore you don't love him. If they knew him, they would recognize the resemblance between him, Jesus, I don't mean physically, and Christ, the things he does that only God can do. They, um, he doesn't accept praise from men. Jesus doesn't need praise from men. He needs praise only from his father. Most people have a need for approval right? It's a healthy thing, right? The person that says, I don't care what anybody thinks, and they never shower, or they never, you know, brush their teeth, you know, it's kind of a different sort of a thing. There are certain protocols and things we ought to do to be, to keep ourselves healthy and what have you, but in terms of who am I pleasing, how many have heard of the term peer pressure? For me, it was the strongest in junior high and high school, right? Close-knit community. It was a big school in San Jose, but still peer pressure. Those are the cool shoes. I better get myself a pair of those kind of thing. Then you get to where you don't care about that stuff, right? Eventually, hopefully, we Christians get to the point where we just want to study the Word so we can know what pleases God so I can please Him, do the things that please Him. When you love someone, you do things just to please that person. So you want to know as much as possible what pleases you, um, the person you love. I know you don't have the love of God in your hearts. It's a major indictment for these guys. They think they love God. What they love is keeping the law, being legalistic, being holier than thou, and they enjoy the attention they get from people in the marketplace. Verse 43, I have come in my father's name and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. To come in his father's name means to come with all the authority and all of the approval that that implies. He's coming as an ambassador to planet earth from heaven in his father's name. He completely obeys his father, we learned earlier in this chapter, if they knew God, they would have recognized that, as we said, the family resemblance, so to speak. Um, popularity is a really addictive drug. Just ask anybody who's been famous or powerful and is no longer famous or powerful. It's a major letdown for a lot of people. That continual need for the um, aggrandizement and the applause of men, so to speak, He's saying they don't love God. That's not their motivation. Uh, and God looks at the heart, by the way. Um, so he's going to tell them why, basically. But this is an interesting verse. I've come in my father's name, and you don't accept me. But if someone comes in his own name, you will accept him. Now, there's a near-in-time fulfillment of that prophecy. That's a prophecy. The near-in-time fulfillment is this is around 30 A.D., 29, 30, somewhere in there. 70 AD is when Jerusalem is overrun by the Romans and um, the temples destroyed, the Jews are dispersed, about a million Jews are killed or taken as slaves. It's the end, so to speak, of Judaism, um, at least biblical Judaism. Uh, 
between those in those 40 years from when he says this to 70 AD, Josephus estimates 70 false messiahs infiltrated Judaism and said they were the messiah. He's the messiah. I'm the messiah. He's the messiah. And really wreaked havoc on the Jewish faith. Some of the Pharisees accepted some of these messiahs for a time and then didn't. Near in time fulfillment, the, all the false messiahs that Judaism has had to deal with. The ultimate one, though, is still future in time, what we know as the beast, Revelation 13, or the Antichrist. He will be a guy that the Jews make a deal with to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. He makes a pact. This is all from Daniel and Revelation 13, but mostly Daniel uh, chapter 9. That's who he's talking about. If someone else comes in his own name, that's Antichrist, comes boastfully putting down God, blaspheming. They, he's saying, because you're deluded, you will accept that kind of a person. Verse 44. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? There's the applause of men that they live for. They love to hear people greet them in the, this is in the gospel of Matthew and elsewhere, um, greet them as father and holy one and rabbi. They love all those sorts of things. Um, these guys are religious phonies. Outside, they act like they're holy. Inside, they're full of dead men's bones. You remember Jesus talks about that to them. Um, if you look at the life of Jesus Christ, it's amazing that the people he comes down the hardest on are the phony religious people, not the prostitutes, not the drunks, not the thieves, not the tax collectors. Now, I'm not saying he winks at their sin. He doesn't. He calls sin, sin but he comes down the hardest on the religious phonies. The lesson for you and I is to look at our lives seriously and ask, am I doing what I'm doing for the love and the glory of God or for my own glory or for the aggrandizement and applause of men, of people? Uh, very important. In any case, how can you believe, verse 44, if you accept praise from one another, if that's your God, if that's what feeds your ego, then you don't need any praise that comes from the only God. The praise he's talking about, you've all heard this phrase in the Bible. You hope to hear it just like I do when you get to heaven, right? Well done, good and faithful servant. Man, doesn't get any better than that. Believers in heaven are given crowns for their service that they did for the gospel. But you see them in the, in the book of Revelation, taking off the crowns and laying them where? At the feet of Jesus Christ. Because anybody that's done anything for the gospel, truly for his glory, not for your own, you know deep down you would have never done it had God not empowered you and moved you to do it. So all the glory, each crown is taken off and thrown at the feet of Jesus, meaning we recognize it's your glory ultimately ultimately not our own. Um, notice the only God in there, monotheism at the end of verse 44. You say, well, Christianity really has three gods. No, one God revealed in three persons, the Trinity. We've talked about that before. Verse 45, but do not think I will accuse you before the father. Ultimately, he is the judge 
but he's going to blow their minds now and say that the, the rest of that verse, your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. Now, they didn't worship Moses like a god. That's not really what's going on here. But in a sense, they worshiped the obedience to the law, to the letter, as being a way to earn or deserve salvation and get kudos from God. Since Moses is the one through whom God gives the law, Moses is their guy. Um, he says, ultimately, Moses will be the one that accuses you because he will know that they have not obeyed what Moses wrote. Deuteronomy 18, we're going to get to in a second here. Um, let me see if we should do it now. Um, but since verse 47, you don't believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? You say you believe what Moses wrote. In Deuteronomy 18, I think it's verse 15, he says, there will be a prophet that comes after me, after Moses, turns out it was centuries later, him you shall hear or listen to. He means the Messiah. A lot of rabbis had written that it wasn't just another prophet. Could it be Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Micah, whoever? They understood it to be messianic, meaning about the Messiah, that this future prophet, which Jesus is and much more, would come and they were to listen to him. The similarities are there between Moses and Jesus, and yet Jesus is far greater. You see that in the transfiguration. Do you remember that? Peter, James, and John go up on the mountain with Jesus, and Jesus starts glowing white, right? And there's Moses and Elijah show up, representing the law and the prophets. That's how they would refer to the Old Testament. And Peter puts his foot in his mouth and says, oh, I get it. Let us build three tabernacles. One for Moses, one for Elijah, one for you, Jesus. I get it. You're on an equal par with them. That's pretty good for Ju Judaism. Wow. And a cloud envelops them. Do you remember? They can't see anything, and they're very afraid. They're on their faces. And the voice from heaven, God the Father, says, this, singular, is my beloved son. Hear him. The cloud goes away. No Elijah. No Moses. Just Jesus. That's a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18. Back to the similarities between Moses and Jesus. Moses is known for um, receiving the law. And yet, if you read your Old Testament, did he keep the law? No. By keep it, I mean obey it completely. He breaks the law. He's a sinner like everybody else. Jesus is different. But Moses leads the people, God's people, listen, out of slavery in Egypt. Egypt in the Bible is always symbolic or emblematic of sin, the sinful world. He leads the Jewish people out of the sinful world towards the promised land. Remember, Jesus leads God's people out of the sinful world, not Egypt necessarily, but the sinful world we've lived in, to the promised land. The difference is, Moses, does he ever get to the promised land? Answer, no. He sees it from afar with binoculars. No, they didn't have binoculars, but you know what I mean. Joshua is the one who leads the Jews the rest of the way into the promised land. Interestingly, Joshua, Jesus, same name in Hebrew, Yeshua, Yeshua, same name. The, the name means Jehovah or God is salvation or Jehovah 
saves. Moses and Jesus are similar, but Jesus keeps the law. He brings us all the way into the promised land. We're about to hear about Moses giving bread from heaven, manna. Remember all that? Um, there's also a water illusion we'll get to in chapter six as well. Um, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. 46 says, for he wrote about me. So the question is, Moses writes the first five books. That's it of the Bible. So just in those first five books, what does Moses write about Jesus? You might ask. Um, I can't resist taking you here. Go to Genesis 3.15. How many know about this verse? Anybody? Proto-Evangel. That's what this verse has a name. That's what the verse is. Genesis chapter 3, go to verse 15. If I can find it, I'll be doing well. What the context of Genesis 3.15, proto means first. Prototype, you ever heard of that? Proto means first. Proto-evangel is the first place in the Bible that the gospel is hinted at. Genesis 3.15, are, are you there? Say amen. That was a weak one. Are you there? Say amen. Okay, that was way better. What's, what's happening in Genesis 3 is God has told Adam and Eve, don't eat of the tree because the day of the knowledge of good and evil, the day you eat of it, you surely die. What do they do? The devil tempts them. They eat. They hide from God. They hide from each other with fig leaves. God shows up and they're hiding. And he says, have you eaten of the tree? They admit they have eventually. God is giving out punishment after that. And so um, in verse uh, 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You'll crawl in your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And here it comes. I, that's God, will put enmity. That's from the same word we get enemy from. Put a division and a clashing and enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. You say, well, what woman is that? Keep reading. Between you and the woman. Between your, literally the word is seed. NIV has offspring between your offspring or your seed and hers. He will crush your head and you will, and you will strike his heel. You say, well, that's as clear as mud. What's going on here? Okay, number one, there'll be enmity between you and the woman. The woman is thought to be Israel, but even more specifically, Mary, okay? And there'll be enmity between, enmity between Satan and Israel, but especially the Virgin Mary. Her marriage almost doesn't happen, remember? Joseph's going to divorce her, all that. Um, but the shocking thing is what follows. Enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and hers. Now, if you know basic biology, you know that the woman has the egg, not the seed, the man has the seed. So this is clearly a biological mistake. No. What do you mean? The only way the woman can have a seed is if it's a virgin birth. There will be enmity between 
um, your seed, Satan's seed, meaning everyone that is not a believer is a son or daughter of Satan. Jesus talks about that in John 8. Remember, he says to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil, right? Remember that? There'll be enmity between your seed and her seed, enmity between Satan and Christ. Of course, they're opposite sides, aren't they? He will crush your head. Jesus will. Ultimately, in the book of Revelation, at the return of Christ, but even more so at the end of the millennium. But on the cross, he defeated Satan and the forces of evil by dying for the sins of the world, which disarmed the devil in terms of hell and death being final for human beings. And you will strike his heel. Which would you rather have, a crushed head or a struck, struck heel? One's a way less serious injury than the other, isn't it? He means the cross on which the heel would be rubbing against the wood and what have you. Um, there is a second hint at the gospel in this same chapter. While we're here, I'll do it real quickly. Um, they've sewn together fig, leaf, fig leaves. Do you remember that? Which is very temporary, kind of lousy clothing, right? Look at verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. You say, I didn't see it. That was it. That was it. Who sinned? Adam, Eve, right? Who deserves punishment? Adam, Eve, and the devil who gets his as well. How do you get animal skins to make clothing? Well, you go to Macy's or the Target store and they have clothing. No, there's no Target. There's no Macy's. To get animal skins, which are a more suitable covering, you have to kill an animal. Wait, who sinned? Adam and Eve. Did the animal sin? No. Are you saying, Joe, that even in the third chapter of Genesis, God is hinting that by the shedding of innocent, the animal, whatever it was, sheep, I don't know, the shedding of innocent blood, there will be a more permanent covering for sin. That's exactly what I'm saying. Um, that's what goes on there. He made garments of skin and clothed them. Go back to John. Um, but we're still answering the question, what did Moses write? I just showed you two things that hint about Jesus. Remember the Old Testament when it talks about the Messiah is like a complicated jigsaw puzzle and you got to put the pieces all together and you start getting the picture of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Um, okay. Same book, Genesis, Jacob's Ladder. Do you remember that? J Jacob has a dream. Some call it a stairway to heaven in which um, he sees a stairway between earth and heaven. Jesus in John chapter one claims to be that stairway. He tells one of the apostles that they will see angels ascending and descending on me, that ladder, that stairway. Moses wrote about Jesus 1,300 or so years before he shows up. The Passover lamb is a picture of Christ. The shedding of innocent blood over the doorpost and the angel of death won't hurt that household. The snake in the desert, Jesus claims to be that snake. The Jews are wandering in the, in the wilderness and they're bitten by poisonous snakes. You say, why would that happen? Because they were grumbling. That's why. And God had had it with their 
complaining. So poisonous snakes bite them. Some of the people are dying. They come to Moses. We're so sorry. We're so sorry. Talk to God for us. What can we do? God talks to Moses and says, get a pole and erect it. And on the top, put a bronze snake. Some people think that it was like this, like a cross, the snake going this way, bronze snake, picture of a cross. We don't know. Anyone who looks to the snake will be healed from the bite of the snake. Snake, Satan, sin. Each of us who were bitten by sin and headed for hell, look to the cross. Jesus Christ claims to be this, just as the Son of Man, uh, just as the snake was lifted up in the wilderness. This is, again, chapter one. So must the Son of Man be lifted up, same way. Um, we look from him and we're saved from spiritual death. Oh, that's John 3. I'm sorry where that is. Um, the seed of the woman, we talked about that. The whole um, idea of the water from the rock. Do you remember in the wilderness? 1 Corinthians 10 says that rock was Christ. You say, what? Literally, these are all snapshots, pictures, pieces of our puzzle. The Jews are in the wilderness. They need water and they need it badly. Do you remember the story? And God asks, uh, sorry, Moses asks God, um, how can we get water? God tells Moses, get your staff. There's the rock. Strike the rock. Hit it hard. Water comes out. And that's how the Jews are given water. It's a picture of Jesus being the living water in John 4. What's interesting is what keeps Moses out of the promised land, I mentioned earlier, is his misuse of the rock. You say, what do you mean? God told him to hit it hard, and he did. Correct. Picturing what? The beating and crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second time the Jews need water, this is book of Numbers, God says they want water again. They're complaining. Uh, Moses says that. God says, this time I want you to go over to the rock and just speak to the rock. Moses gets a little too much ego and says, shall we fetch water for you, Jews? And in anger, he strikes the rock again. And God tells him, from now on, you're in the penalty box. You won't get into the promised land. You'll see it from far away. You say, why is that? because the rock is a picture of Christ. He's only struck one time, once for all, salvation through the cross. You with me? Since then, what has to happen for somebody to be saved? You got to crucify him again and again. No. You know how you got saved? You spoke to him. Please forgive me of my sin. I'm sorry. I receive you as Savior and Lord of my life. I ask you to take over the driver's seat whoops, of my life. It was a picture of Jesus, that rock struck the first time from then on, speak to the rock, water flows. Um, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, is a picture of Jesus Christ, Revelation 5, 5. The whole life of Joseph, my favorite story in the Old Testament, is a picture of Jesus Christ. More than a hundred ways, Joseph prefigures Jesus Christ. How so, Joe, you ask? I'm glad you asked. He's the beloved son of his father, right? Jacob is not a great dad. He favors one son over the others. He's the beloved son of the father who's envied and hated by his own brothers who reject him, 
who throw him in a pit, the grave, but he comes out of the pit, goes to somewhere far away, Christ rising from the dead, where Joseph ends up being in charge and saves his people um, from, you know, a member of the whole famine and what have you. Jesus is the better Joseph, the better Moses. So we could go on and on, but Moses writes of Jesus again and again and again and again. Let's keep rolling, shall we? Bottom line, verse 47, since you don't believe what he wrote, you don't believe the scriptures you say, how are you going to believe what I say? Keep in mind, what Moses wrote was the words of God, right? Thus saith the Lord. All scripture is God breathed. Standing before them is God who spoke the words to Moses that they think are so holy. Let's move on to chapter six, shall we? But look at the indictment before we move on of these Jewish leaders. Verse 38, you don't have God's word in you. You don't believe the one God sent. Verse 40, you don't want to come to me. Verse 42, you don't have the love of God in you. Verse 43, you don't believe me. You can't believe verse 44. And you don't even believe Moses, who you think you believe. Major indictment against them. Chapter 6, verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That is the Sea of Tiberias. Now, it's the Sea of Galilee, but because Herod had named a city after the current emperor, Tiberius, on that shore, they started to call it the Sea of Tiberias by the time John's writing this years after Jesus has died and risen. So they cross over to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. This would be the west or northwest, I'm sorry, east or northeast side. There's less people on that side. And by the way, there's less Jews, more Gentiles. That's where they're headed. Um, Verse two, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. That's not good news. What we're hoping, it says, is a great crowd of Jesus followed him because they recognized who he was, the Son of God, the Messiah, their Savior. They're not coming for spiritual reasons. They're coming for physical reasons. I get if you've been very sick or in pain and someone can heal you, that's a big deal. But listen, the greatest healing of all is not physical because all physical healing is temporary. The greatest healing of all is spiritual because it's eternal. That's already occurred in you. That's what Jesus wants to do. But he's so compassionate, so loving, he can't resist seeing, um, touching and healing paralyzed people, blind people, even dead people, bringing them back to life, uh, and what have you, lepers and demon-possessed. That great crowd is following them because of the signs. They have a sign faith in quotes. Sign faith is never as strong as true faith. The problem with sign faith is, you know how many signs are enough? Another one. And then more after that. You'll see it here. That's why they're following him. Um, because he performed signs healing the sick. Verse 3, then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. What John only hints at, the other gospels confirm. He's trying to get away 
from the crowd to have some quiet time with God and with his apostles, okay? He's sort of ditching this huge crowd that's coming. Um, but they soon find him. Why are all these people in the middle of nowhere over there? Answer, verse 4. The Jewish Passover festival was near, which was one of three major Jewish holidays that every able-bodied Jewish male, and usually their family, mandatorily had to attend. Passover's near, which means what? This is springtime, very late winter, early spring. Got the picture? That's going to come back in a second. So that's why they happen to be out there in the wilderness. They see him and they're coming. They, they want more of what he's got. They want the product he's got instead of the person. They want the healing instead of the spiritual and eternal healing. So he's up on a mountainside. Only John talks about this being a mountainside or a hill. Um, the others don't mention that. Maybe to recall Moses and the mountain, Mount Sinai and all of that, some scholars think. I don't know if that's true. The Jewish Passover festival is near. Um, verse 5, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat. Now, keep in mind, uh, the text says, by the way, this story of feeding the 5,000 is what we call it, is so important. It's in all four gospels. Okay, that's first. Secondly, Jew, Jews and Arabs are the same way. In the Middle East, you count only the men in a crowd. Sorry, ladies, sorry, children. You count only the men. What's your point, Joe? 5,000 men. If we conservatively say there's one woman per man, okay, that's 10,000 people. That doesn't count children, okay? Generally, in a church or a Bible study, more women attend than men. Who knows? So this crowd could easily be 20,000, 25,000 people. Huge crowd coming. I want you to get that picture. Um, that's why it's a great crowd in verse five. So why ask Philip of all the people that are there? And the answer is because Philip is the only local. Philip is from Bethsaida. And that's the closest large town to where they are, which is out in the middle of nowhere. There's no restaurant. There's no big supermarket to go get food. But he asks Philip, where are we going to get food to feed all these? Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Verse six. He asked this only to test him for he already knew or had in mind what he was going to do. A little test of a question. What he's trying to do is not stump the apostle. He's trying to get them to see that the situation is not bleak. It is bad. It's impossible. Okay, that's what he's trying to do. Where can we get, where should we go to buy food for all these people? A crowd of 20, 25,000 is coming up the mountain. Where can we buy food? Verse seven, Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. In other words, it would, that wouldn't even be enough. Um, 800, uh, Sorry, 200 denarii is what he actually says, 
That's roughly eight months wages for a normal a worker, a male worker in that era. He's saying even that wouldn't be enough to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. So he's sort of admitting we got an impossible situation here. What John doesn't include because he just wants to focus on Jesus and this miracle, John doesn't include what the other gospel writers, some of them say, which is the apostles, he comes up with a monetary idea. If we had that much money, we could buy, go buy food, but it would take time and all that. In the other gospels, the apostles have another solution. Do you remember what it is, anybody? Send them home. Get rid of them, Jesus. It's getting late starting to get dark, get rid of them. Party's over, everybody go home. There's no food here, get lost. Is that Christ's way? No, they're coming to him, even for reasons that aren't as pure as he would wish. He has such compassion, he intends to feed them all as an object lesson of who he is, which is the main thing in this gospel. It'd take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to just have a little morsel. Impossible. Verse eight. Another, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Verse 9. Here is a, in the Greek, it's little, little boy. So we got a really little kid here. Three, four, five, six. Double diminutive. I won't bore you with what that is in Greek, meaning little, little, really little kid. Here's a little boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But... What are they, or how far will they go among so many? Kind of a pessimist, right? But he's right. Let's face it. If you divided, and these are not loaves of bread. You ever buy a big, you know, French roll of French bread or Italian bread at Giardelli Square? These aren't huge rolls. They're more like little dinner biscuits, smaller than a dinner biscuit, and more flat, almost like the size of a small cookie, if you will. He's got five of these and two fish. Okay, you with me so far? These are small little pickled fish. They're really, really, really small. Skeptics of the Gospels, you ready for this? This cracks me up, have said, well, the reason he was able to feed all these people is these loaves were huge. I mean, just ridiculous. And the fish must have been, you know, like dolphin size. Really? A little boy is carrying all this food? Give me a break. Okay. Don't miss the little boy. He's an insignificant being, and yet he is an amazing part of this story. I'm going to suggest that of every human being that's there, this kid has more faith than all of them. You say, well, I didn't see that. Why do you think? Andrew speaks up and says, here's a small boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? What's about to happen, and we're going to take our two-minute break in a second, what's about to happen is that is, is astounding for a couple of reasons. Number one, the little boy could have said, hey, I planned ahead, get your own food, right? Or Let's give him a little more credit. I'm willing to tithe 10% of the bread. And here's a little 10% of the fish. Now get lost. This I planned ahead. You people didn't. Okay. He gives the whole lunch away. 
hoping maybe this is a ripoff and he's going to end up being hungry and he had food. He trusts Jesus somehow. The question I have, I couldn't find any commentator that wrote about it. How many people are there, Joe, again? 15, 20, 25,000, 12 apostles, Jesus. Do you really believe in that huge crowd that would fill a small stadium? No one had any food whatsoever if they're on the way to Jerusalem? I think some of them had food. The only one that came forward was this little kid. I have some loaves of bread and some fish. He's offering it. I think there was people that went, it's in my pocket. They're not getting it. Don't worry, honey. I think this kid outfaiths them all, if you will. Let's take our two-minute break. I'm going to turn my screen off. Don't go away. I'll be back in two minutes. The little boy is willing to give up his lunch to the Lord Jesus Christ. I may be wrong, but I think other people had food and they didn't. Um, but clearly they don't have enough food for everybody. So we're about to see an amazing miracle with a lot of implications that we'll get to. Um, let's see, where did we <clears throat> leave off? A boy with five barley loaves and two small fish. How far will they go among so many? What a great rhetorical question. The answer to that is, if you calculated it out, it would be microscopic amount for each person, right? If we're really dividing it up in tiny little molecules. But in the answer is to the question, how far will they go among so many? The answer to that question is, well, it depends whose hands they end up in, right? If just the disciples or Jesus uh, or, or the little boy has them, no one's going to be able to eat much. In Jesus's hands, little we're going to see is much. As I said, the boy does not give a tenth. The boy gives everything, right? Pretty amazing, uh, faithful little kid. Um, okay. By the way, barley was the food basically that was the least, least expensive. It was for the poorest people. Um, uh, and mainly for animals. So this little boy has his lunch and he's willing to give it up to Jesus. Um, verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down about 5,000 men were there. We know the grass would be green because it's early spring. Many commentators see an allusion here to Jesus being the great shepherd. You say, how's that? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. It really means I won't have any need that's not fulfilled. I won't be in want, meaning in need. Jesus is about to fulfill their needs. What's the next phrase in that psalm? He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Coincidence? I don't think so. I think he's acting out a sort of a parable in a lot of ways. 
Um, so he makes them sit down in the, in the parallel account in Matthew, we find out he makes them sit down in groups of 50. Very, I want you to notice how orderly this is. Make them sit down in groups of 50 with aisles in between each group. It's very orderly. God's God of order. Look at creation. The planets spin perfectly in predictable orbits, the moon, all that. Um, also, if, you, if everybody's standing and crowding around and they find out free food, there could be a mad rush, right? Make them sit down, make it a very organized kind of a thing. Groups of 50, but with that kind of thousand, many thousands of people, talking a lot of groups divided up, right? Make them sit down. So the disciples have a hand in this. He could have just put food in their stomachs and snapped his finger and they just go, oh, we're full now. Thank you. Right. He could have just made food out of nothing. Couldn't he? Right. But he doesn't. He does it this way. He takes what someone gives and multiplies it. Verse 11. Then Jesus took the loaves and gave thanks. If Jesus Christ, Son of God, Messiah, second person of the Trinity, gives thanks before he eats, shouldn't you? You're talking every meal? Every meal. Even a cookie between lunch and dinner? Yes. Even a carrot? But yes. Thank God. Get in the habit, even at a restaurant with unbelievers. We're going to bow our heads now and thank God for the food. They won't object. They'll be like, oh, really? Here? Okay. And you pray and thank God, recognize that God is the one that gave you the food. You say, no, I worked at my job. That's how I got the money to buy the food. Who gave you the talent to be able to work and the ability and the, and the health to be able to work? Who made the job happen for you? You got to see God's fingerprints are on every blessing you have. Thank God every time you eat or drink. Good habit to get into. Um, Jesus himself gives thanks this is a little ridiculous. Not that he's giving thanks, but for a group of 20,000, thank you for the, what can fit in my hand here, food-wise, for all these people. In Jesus's hands, multiplication is about to occur. Um, he gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. We know from the other gospels, John wants to concentrate just on Jesus. The other gospels indicate that he is taking it out of a basket and breaking it and giving it to each of the 12 apostles who he gives a hand, by the way, including Judas in this task. Okay. And logically it should disappear in the first basket, but he just keeps breaking it and multiplying it and giving it and giving it over and over. And each apostle doesn't make one trip. You've got groups of 50, hundreds of them, right? So they're each coming back for another one. And here it comes more and more. And word is probably spreading in the crowd. Something's going on here, right? They didn't have a trailer, a food truck. And even if they did, you'd run out of food with 20,000 people. Just an awesome miracle. Um, let's see. He distributed to those who are seating, notice this, as much as they wanted. I think when the people got done, they were, you ever eat this way? I do. I'm embarrassed to say where I couldn't eat another bite where you almost want to take your belt off kind of thing or unbuckle your pants like, oh, please, I couldn't eat another bite. 
Everyone is filled. Remember when he turned water into wine? What did the headmaster say? Who for a living put on big parties? This is really unbelievable wine. Do you remember? Most people serve the good stuff first. Everybody's been drinking for a while. You bring out the cheap stuff. You've saved the best for last. I don't know this, but I bet when we get to heaven and interview some people that were here, I bet they'll tell you it was the best meal they ever had. I never had fish like that again. I never had bread like that again. Fresh, warm, break baked bread. I don't know. I think it was incredible. They each ate as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. Everybody's got fish and bread to eat. The people have to know this is a miracle. I'll show you that in a second. Verse 12, when they had all had enough to eat, he said to this, his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. Well, this is almost comical now. So they're going to end up with 12 baskets, big baskets, full of leftovers from what would have fit in his hands. You got the picture? Absolute abundance. Jesus gives to these people First of all, in grace. Second of all, he gives because someone gave to him. If you think I'm too young to really have a ministry or participate in serving at a church, I'm too old to serve. I don't have much to give. I don't have much money to give. Whatever you can give to God, God will use it and multiply it, whether it's one of your three T's or something else. What are my three T's, Joe? Your time, your talent, your treasure, meaning money or financial goods or things you can donate. Your time, give your talent to the church. Every single person at a church ought to be serving in some way or another. The problem is nobody wants to sweep the floors or wash the toilets or the sinks or replace the towels in the bathroom. We all want to be, could I be the head of something, right? In any case, now that I made you feel guilty, let's move on. Um, this is absolutely um, a, a miracle. And on the physical level, which is all we've been at so far, it's an amazing creative miracle, meaning he created bread and fish out of nothing, basically, just from the pieces that the little kid gave him. This is fish that have, these are fish that have never swam or hatched out of an egg. This is bread that had never has grown as wheat or barley, has never been baked or cooked or prepared. It's just God creating out of nothing. He spoke the world into existence, right? Let there be light, let there be mountains, let there be seas and teeming with fish and let there be sun, stars, sun, moon, and what have you, planets. Pretty amazing. If this doesn't prove he's God, what will? But the question is, every miracle we have said is a sign, right? Signs point to something. Coarse gold this way, that's a sign, right? You don't look at the sign and go, well, we're here, coarse gold. No, you read the sign and go, it's pointing to something else, pointing the way. This sign is pointing to another clue about who and what this person, Jesus of Nazareth, is, 
right? And we're eliminating every other possibility. He's just a really smart guy. No, really smart guys. I, Einstein never got bread and fish and fed thousands, right? Um, he's a magician. David Copperfield, I'll, I'll give him the fish and the bread. There's no way you're going to feed a whole stadium full of people. He's the son of God. He's proving it again and again. But before we move on, all we've dealt with is the physical bread and fish providing for their needs. Now, the problem with the physical is I don't care how much these people ate of bread and fish. I said they're really full. They can't eat anymore. Tomorrow, they'll be hungry again. I'll guarantee you, right? I know myself. You don't eat and go, I don't have to eat now for a week or two. Yes, you do. We keep needing bread. He had told the woman at the well, the Samaritan, do you remember? If you drink of the water, I'll give you the living water. You will never thirst again. Remember that? He doesn't mean water. He means living water. Spiritually, what he's going to give you will fill you up in a way you'll never thirst spiritually for any other guru or God or religion or way to get to heaven. It will completely fulfill you. That's the point. That's about to tie in in a second here if the teacher figures out what he's about to say. Um, this, there's Old Testament names for God, which are very instructive. Um, uh, Jehovah Ra'ah, R-A-A-H, Lord, the Lord, our shepherd. I'll come back to that later too. Um, interestingly, Psalm 78 says, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Rhetorical question, right? Of course. Let's go back to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures, right? He just did that. I'm skipping ahead now, but we'll come back. I'm skipping ahead in that Psalm where it says, you, talking to the shepherd, prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Do you remember that? He's preparing. He's acting as host here. He's the one to thank God for the food. He's distributing it to the disciples. The disciples get a hand in it and they're not stupid. They're instantly on the first trip going, walking up Andrew and Peter. This is unbelievable. Where did all this food come from? They go back for trip number two, three, four, five, six. They probably walked a few miles right up and down the hill. Pretty amazing thing. Um, when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Why 12 baskets? Coincidence? Anybody? 12 tribes of Israel? Maybe. 12 apostles? 12 baskets. What are you saying, Joe? He's teaching a public lesson to 20,000 or so. He's teaching his apostles, who will be teachers soon, the bigger lesson, which is, I want you each to have your own basket of leftovers that you carry and feel the weight of and realize this guy can meet all my needs. I shall not want. Pretty amazing. Each of them has a tangible piece of evidence, a big basket full of evidence um, to remember this miracle. Um, and there's no waste. That's not God's way. 
So they gathered, verse 13, them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves. He reminds us, five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. This is an amazing miracle. It, is, it speaks to the fact that God will meet your needs. He knows what you, not your greeds, but your needs. He knows what you and I need. He will meet our needs. But he sometimes does so in strange ways like this. We spoke earlier of the little boy. He gave up his lunch. He must have thought, am I doing the right thing here? He can't be there alone. He's probably there with his folks. Maybe they urged him, give them the bread, give him the bread and the fish. What happened to the little boy? He ended up as full as everybody else. I would argue fuller than he would have been had he withheld the food, right? What about the disciples? They've already eaten. They've got 12 baskets of extra food now. Absolute abundance when we give God what is really his anyway. Um, don't give to get, though. That's the wrong motive. Give because of his glory. If you do get, great. But he always provides. Verse 14, after the people saw the sign, oh no, that recalls what we heard earlier. Why are they following him? Signs. He did it. He did another magic trick, you guys. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, verse 14, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. That's Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Moses has said, there'll be a prophet coming after me. Hear him. Messianic, Messiah type thing. They're saying, this is the guy. So you're reading that thinking, oh, good, they're getting it. Are they? That's what they said. But let's hear their thoughts now. Verse 15. Jesus, knowing, isn't that great? Knowing. He knows. You can't hide from him. Knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Doesn't want the applause of men. Knows they're going to take him to be king. You say, why? They think he's going to be their meal ticket. If he did this every day, we'd never have to work. Free food. I wonder if he could do it with turkey sandwiches and ice cream. Oh, I'm sure. Right? They also think the Messiah is going to be a military leader who will throw off the yoke of Rome and save Israel, get them back in a position where they are in charge of their own country. Does Jesus, the Messiah, come as a conquering king to punish enemies and reward believers? Yes, but not the first time he shows up. The first time he comes as a suffering servant, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. The second time he comes, the second coming, he comes to judge the living and the dead. He comes to take back the title deed of the earth. If you've read in the book of Revelation, all those, the seven seals, remember that on the scroll, and that's the title deed of earth and all the judgment that's supposed to come on the planet earth. He's the only one worthy to open that in the book of Revelation, but we digress. Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. They want to make him king by force. That, that word in Greek by force is uh, harpazo, which is the same word as rapture. They want to just snatch him and make him king. 
as if they could, right? We're going to force you to be king. Really? You're going to force him? So when he hears this, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Do you remember in Luke 4 when the devil tempts Jesus? One of the things he tempts him with is, hey, you're hungry, haven't eaten. Why don't you turn these loaves, these stones into loaves of bread and eat them? What does Jesus say? Can't do it. Uh, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth, Jesus's mouth, of God. He could have done it, right? But he never does a miracle for his own aggrandizement or his own good. He does a miracle here to feed others. Surely Jesus probably ate fish and bread here as well. But the other thing the devil tempts him with, if you remember, is you don't have to go to the cross. Just bow down to me, Satan, Jesus is told by Satan, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. They're mine to give. Shortcut. You don't have to die, get all bloody and beaten up. Can't do it. Worship God alone. Remember that? This is the same temptation a second time. You say, it is? Yes. They want to make him king by force. What if he had said, okay, I'll do it. I'm the king of Israel. I don't have to go to the cross now. I'm in charge. I'll take control now. Who would go to heaven if he doesn't die on the cross? Nobody. They're all sinners, right? And they don't believe in him for the right reasons. They want the stuff instead of the king, the real king. By the way, they want to make him king by force. He's already king of kings and lord of lords. He's the god of the universe. It's kind of ironic. We want to make you king. He's thinking, I could tell Jupiter to take a hike and it would. You're going to make me king? because I gave you some bread. Pretty astounding. Um, hold on, I'm reading notes here. Um, yeah, they want the king that they want. They want to invent their own Messiah, their own God. People today do the same thing. I'm willing to believe in Jesus. I don't like this part of the gospel, and I don't like this part of the Bible, but I want my Jesus. I want my God created in, are you ready? My image, right? That God that you and I create, if we do so, it's a mistake. When we create our own God, do you know what happens? That God will have a standard that we invented for sin, and it'll be so comfortable for us, right? He'll, that God will wink at some things I do that aren't right. Can your God disagree with you and challenge you. If not, then you've invented your own God. Because if you read the Bible and you're not challenged, you're not paying attention. Okay, they want to make him king. And he says, no way, I'm out of here. What the other gospels tell us is he sends people in three directions. What do you mean? Well, he sends people in two directions and himself in another. He goes higher up in the mountain, but first he tells the people bye-bye, and gets rid of them, dismisses the crowd, okay, in the other gospels, which leaves the 12 apostles and Jesus. In the other gospels, it says Jesus makes them get into the boat and go across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, makes them. And I'm sure they're going, no, no, you come with us. And he says, I'm going to go up on the mountain to pray. I'll catch up with you later. He makes them go because they don't want to go without him. That's important. I'll show you why in a second. Verse 16, so he withdraws again to the mountain by himself. You know Jesus from the other gospels. What do you think he's doing up there? Taking a nap? I think he's praying all night, right? 
Verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake. John doesn't tell us this, but Jesus made them go. Where they got into a boat, parenthesis, obeying Jesus. Why are you mentioning that? You'll see. And they set off across the lake for Capernaum. This is the Sea of Galilee. It's not a huge lake, but it's good size. By now it was dark. And Jesus had not yet joined them. But he told them, I want you to go without me. He hadn't joined them. Verse 18. By the way, several of these guys, not all of them, several of these guys are experienced fishermen on that particular lake. They know it like the back of their hand. Okay. Um, if you've been on Bass Lake or some lake with people that own a boat that go out all the time, they know every little cove and every little place to go. The best fish are over there and they know everything about it. These are professional fishermen. If you've ever been around professional fishermen, they're like carpenters. They're not wimps. They're strong guys. They're not afraid, but they're about to be. A strong wind was blowing, verse 18, and the waters grew rough. The wind is so strong, it's uh, it's churning up the water, making it, it's a headwind, making it almost impossible to get across. The boats have sails, the sails are now down, and they're rowing. Mark says they're straining at the oars. It's estimated they are straining at the oars for, listen, six to eight hours, okay? Very unusual that it would be this strong of a wind. The truth is, the Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level, and it's like in a big bowl with mountains all around it. So it's un not uncommon for the winds to come down from different directions and cause, you know, wind on the Sea of Galilee. But this is extremely unusual. Verse 19. Keep in mind, they're obeying Jesus, right? Um, yeah. By the way, Matthew 8 records another storm on the Sea of Galilee in a boat. What's different about that one, Joe? He's on the boat with them asleep. You remember? And they wake him up and say, hey, don't you care? We're, we're dying here. They really think they're going to perish. And remember? And he stands up and says, shh, to the storm. And it just calms down instantly. Not over a period of 20 minutes. The wind just stops and the sea's like glass incredible. This is different. This is, will be a preparation for a future time when they will have great faith, but he will not be with them. Jesus can meet our needs. They're all talking about it on the boat. Did you see, was that bread good or what? Oh man, the fish was incredible too. He can really meet our needs, but he's not with us now as we're rowing. Can Jesus Meet our needs when we're not physically with him. Of course, you know the answer. You pray to him all the time, right? Verse 19, when they had rowed about three or four miles, that's 20 to 25 to 30 stadia. So it's, it's about two and three quarters to almost four miles, somewhere in that range. They've, in other words, they're not four feet from shore going, come on, boys, step out and get off the boat. They're in the middle or near the middle. Okay, they've been rowing a long time to get that far. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. That's kind of a 
duh, right? In Mark's gospel, it says they think they're seeing a ghost. Also, I think it's Mark's gospel, but it might be Matthew. We get a detail John doesn't give us. John wants to get right to the miracle. He can't wait. In the other gospels, we find out that Jesus went up on the mountain to pray, do you remember? And was watching them the whole time. Even as they were straining, even with the storm and the wind and the watching that he was there, his eye was on them the whole time. Listen, this is a metaphor or a symbol for trouble in your life and mine. What do you mean? Storm. I don't mean, yes, it's a physical storm, but all these things are signs. What's, what do you mean by a storm? I mean, financial trouble, marriage trouble, health problems, um, problems with a son or daughter that you can't, there's no relationship left or husband and wife that are, you know, a thousand different things in your life and mine that trouble us. You got the picture? So when you're in that situation, you're in a storm and Although you believe in Jesus and he's in your heart and you pray to him and you know he's with you, he's not with you, right? You can't reach out and go, Jesus, I'm really hurting. We can't see him. We believe it's all about faith, isn't it? That's what we're about to see here. When they had rowed three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat. They don't call out to Jesus, right? Help. Jesus, they figure he's miles away up the mountain. There's no way he can hear us. Could he hear them? Absolutely. Did he know this was going to happen? Absolutely. That's why he made him get in the boat. It's time for your ne next lesson, boys. You realize I'm the provider. I want you to now see that I'm the protector and the all-seeing eye that watches you. So they see him walking on the water. Remember Moses. We talked about it earlier. Moses has some stuff go on with water. Remember the Red Sea. God, we're in a little predicament here. Here comes the army. Hold up your staff. The Red Sea parts. Pretty cool. They walk, by, walk through on dry land. The same escape for them kills the Egyptian army. They're drowned in that water once it collapses on them. In this case, Jesus is not Moses who has to ask God. He doesn't part the lake. He just suspends the laws of science that he wrote himself anyway and decides to walk on water and temporarily suspend the law of gravity so he doesn't sink. Don't try this in your pool or at the lake. You'll get wet, right? Absolutely impossible from a physical standpoint. He's walking on the water. Please don't picture Jesus walking on a calm, serene lake, okay, with one mile an hour of wind, just a little breeze. He's walking on the water in the same storm they're in, unaffected. What they're straining at the oars to get anywhere with, he's strolling on the lake. I don't even think his hair's blowing. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. But he's walking to them on the water. Um, they see him approaching the boat, and they were frightened. In the parallel accounts in Mark and um, Matthew, maybe Luke too, I can't remember, they are, there's two different words for when they're afraid. They're afraid of the storm, and then they're more afraid when they see him. 
What's more dangerous? Him. The power he has is makes a storm. You're going to see him quiet the storm and do a second miracle in a second. So he's walking on water. That's a miracle. And he knows right where they are. He sees them from far away and they're frightened. Verse 20, but he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Literally, ego eimi, I am, fear not. Four words in English, I am, divine name of God, Genesis, uh, Exodus 3, sorry. He says, it's really me. I'm not a ghost. Why is that important? What have we been saying? The most important thing in this book is, who is this Jesus? He was a great teacher. Oh, he's so much more. He's a prophet. He's so much more than that. Miracle worker, so much more than that. Ego me. I am. He's saying, it's me. I'm God. Don't be afraid. You have nothing to fear. Psalm 23 again. Remember? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, they feel like they might die out there. I will fear no evil because you are what? With me. To, this, to the extent you and I can sense that his presence is with us, even when we don't see him or feel it. And the storm, by the way, the storm is extremely distracting. The sound of the wind, the water whipping them in the face, the boat pitching from one side to the other. They're so tired from rowing all those hours. They're in the physical too much. They should say, come on, he made all that bread. He's raised the dead. He's healed the sick. He's going to, you watch, he's going to come through. He'll be here any minute. How? We're in the middle of the, maybe you'll get a boat. Who knows? They don't expect him to walk on the water. In the parallel accounts, John, again, is so interested in the glory of Jesus. He leaves it out. In the parallel accounts, you remember, Peter says, Lord, if it's really you, let me walk to you on the water. Do you remember? Pretty bold, right? Peter, we put Peter down a lot, foot in his mouth, you know. That's pretty bold. And Jesus says, okay, come on. If I'm Peter, I'm going, oh, never mind, right? Because <laughs> that first step would be the hardest one. Like, seriously? And he walked on the water toward Jesus. Do you remember? But what happened? As soon as he took his eyes off Jesus and let the distraction of the wind and the waves and the water and the impossibility of what he was doing affect him and looked at his, his circumstances, what happened? He sunk. And Jesus has to grab him by the hand and go, oh, ye little faith, why did you doubt? John leaves that out, doesn't want Peter to get the spotlight. Who does he want to get the spotlight? Christ. That's why. How are we doing on time? Almost out of time. Um, so he says, it is I, don't be afraid. Verse 30, 21, sorry. Then they were willing to take him into the boat. They had been afraid, right? Then they were willing to welcome him into the boat. And immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Did you catch that? They were in the middle of the lake. So what did he have, like an outboard motor and just and really fast? They went. No, this is another separate miracle. Listen, for some people, and we'll close in a second. Death is the ultimate storm, right? 
the scariest thing. Sick, in pain, to be alone, to be needy. It's all scary. Death. Oh. We try not to think about it, but Walter Martin used to say the death rate on planet Earth is still one per person. Right? You're all going to die of your last disease or accident. There's no exceptions unless there's a rapture. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll allow that. Death is the ultimate storm. But what does Jesus say about death? What does Paul say about death? Death has for believers what? No sting. Do you know why? Because the second you reach that storm, he's not only with you, but you're at your destination, just like this. What do you mean? I mean heaven. I don't think when you die, you have to go through customs and TSA and they check you for metal and take your shoes off, please. Uh, we're going to heaven. It'll be 11 hour trip. I think absent from the body, Paul says, present with the Lord. Same, just like this. When you welcome him into the boat, he, he doesn't say, I'm coming aboard. He waits for them to welcome him, which you've done in your life. And so have I. Once we've done so, we, our destination is assured. Listen, he just placed that boat on the other shore where they were going. In their own strength, how were they doing? They weren't getting anywhere. I, I bet you they were going backwards at some points, right? He gets in the boat and they're instantly where they're going, where they were heading. John puts that in there to let you know that's another miracle. Next week, we're going to talk about what the previous story we just talked about, the bread, really means. We've done only the physical, okay? But for believers, the takeaway is he's our provider of our needs. He is also the one that in any storm, when you trust him and pray to him and welcome him into your boat, there's absolute peace and calm. You know what else John leaves out? That the minute he gets in the boat, the whole lake is calm again. Unbelievable. Someone's crying here and it's making me want to cry. Okay, let's close with prayer and we'll get out of here. Pick it up next week. Heavenly Father, thank you for this unbelievable two stories, God. And we'll talk next week about how they tie together. Help us to see, God, whose acceptance really matters, whose applause. We want yours, God, and only yours. Help us not to care what other people think if they ridicule us. Um, help us to live our lives for the applause of one, for your applause, God. Lord, thank you for who you are, the bread of life we'll see next week, the sustenance we need, not just for physical life, but for eternal life. Help us to feed on the food of your word and help us to be like that little boy with just a few loaves and fish that are willing to give you what we have knowing that you'll multiply it and use it in a way we never could. All to your glory, God. Thank you for this time, Father. Bless each one that are, is here. I pray that each of us would learn and grow. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you all on Zoom for being here, all of you here. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know in this room. That's very important. The rest of you on Zoom, God bless you. I'm going to turn my screen off. I'll see you next week. Have a great night.